All right. Well, welcome to Grow Course number eight as we look at Ephesians four tonight. So, as we've traditionally done here for the Grow Course, want to share a Grow photo for you tonight. And I think the last time I shared a photo, a cute little photo of these little chicks who were crossing the road, learning to cross the street and navigate through traffic and over curbs. But I thought, you know, I kind of up the man factor tonight, you know? You know, so uh, I wanted even another photograph that would illustrate this concept of growth, particularly after Al's sermon entitled Grow Up from Ephesians 5 on Sunday. So, in light of Al's sermon, I have a new picture of Grow for us. And here it is, right here. A man with his slab of meat, right here. Now, for those on the recording, we have a man with a raw red meat in his mouth here, choosing not milk, but meat. All right, right out of Hebrews chapter 5, verse 13. Last week's sermon, for anyone, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food, right here, is for the mature, right here. So we're talking about solid food tonight, so I hope you are ready for a steak, a meal tonight. I just want to say thanks for being here, and uh, thanks for those who are on the recording as well who couldn't make make it, but are listening in tonight. We had a great meal last month. It's been a while. I think it's been a little over a month this time. Just thought I would just briefly review for you where we've come from in this book of Ephesians. We're on now in chapter 4. Talk a little bit about what we've already digested as we kind of find our place in Ephesians 4 tonight. And to summarize, I thought I'd enlist the help of John Stott in his commentary on Ephesians as he sums up the first three chapters that we've already covered quite nicely. So here are the words of John Stott. For three chapters, Paul has been unfolding for his readers the eternal purposes of God worked out in history. Through Jesus Christ, who died for sinners and was raised from death, God is creating something entirely new, not just a new life for individuals, for a new society, Paul sees an alienated humanity being reconciled, a fractured humanity being united, even a new humanity being created. It is a magnificent vision. Now the Apostle Paul moves on from this new society to the new standards which are expected of it. So he turns from exposition to exhortation. That's the night, the exhortation. From what God has done in the indicative to what must be what we must be and do, the imperative, from doctrine to duty, from the credenda to the agenda, from mind-stretching theology to its down-to-earth, concrete implications in everyday living. So today we're going to be hitting the pavement as we look at the implications of all that we've been studying the last several months as we finally get to chapter 4, the imperatives, the exhortations, how we are then to live. Our main theme for Ephesians, if you recall, is one new humanity. We divided up Ephesians, remember, into two sections, two major divisions. The first I entitled, the first two chapters, the Christian's wealth. The Christian's wealth. I.e., that's the mind-stretching theology John Sutter's talking about. In the second three chapters, was the Christian's? Remember what it is? Walk. The Christian's walk. That is the concrete implications for everyday living. So that's where we are today, chapter 4, as we learn to walk in the truths that we've been studying the last several months. So with that in mind, let us pray and ask for God's help and assistance tonight. Well, Lord, I do realize that we come tired, we come frayed, we often come with distractions. Holy Spirit, would you help us tonight? Would you illuminate your word before us. May we learn what it is to walk in these mind-stretching truths that we have been studying, that have been presented to us in these first three chapters of, of the book of Ephesians. 
So Lord, help us tonight. We want to be skilled in your word. We want to move on from this milk to solid food, the food for the mature. We want to grow in our appetite for your word. So Lord, grow it tonight. Feed us tonight. Nourish us tonight through your word and give us understanding where there is confusion. Lord, when you bring clarity, where there is doubt, would you bring faith to our hearts that we would respond to this word that you've given to us in obedience, Lord, in joy as we learn to walk as mature Christians in Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, I want us to hear the word of God first and foremost. So I'm going to have our friend Max McLean read the entire chapter, chapter 4 of Ephesians. So if you have your Bible, read along. This is going to be in the ESV version. And just get the word into our hearts as we listen now. Ephesians 4. There you go. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned to Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. All right, thank you, Max. Well, that is a lot of content, is it not? 
I'm just, we're small here tonight, and I'm really trusting the Lord that he's going to direct our conversation. So much of tonight is going to be really based on the interaction that we have, your comments, your thoughts, and even your questions. As you just heard the text, there's more than we can cover. And I'm really trusting the Spirit's going to lead us tonight. Certainly I prepared the answers, and hopefully you prepared the answers as well. But there's so much here. But we're trusting that in an hour or so that we have, that the Lord will graciously direct our gaze to the things that he most wants us to attend to and to focus on tonight. So that, that's my prayer, guys, as we approach, as we go through our homework. Thank you once again for being here and going through Ephesians 4 and doing the hard work that we can benefit together tonight. So really, I am resting upon your responses. Feel free. Jump in, please, and uh, as we interact together on Ephesians 4. Well, as we look at our homework... The first question relates to the very first verse of Ephesians 4. This first verse is really the topic sentence, not only for this chapter, but really for the entire remaining three chapters. By the way, if we're going to break this chapter up, as I did in my charts, um, basically we have two major sections in chapter 4. It's walk worthy, and then walk in truth. So let's take that first concept, walk worthy, which we find in verse number 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Well, from your homework questions, based on the first two chapters of Ephesians, what is this calling to which Paul is referring to? We're to walk worthy according to what? The calling you've received. What is this calling? Put it in your own words or even the words from Ephesians 1 through 3. Anyone? Rafa, yeah. Okay, good. So, certainly it entails a hope. Our calling leads us to hope, right? Certainly, yeah. Anyone else want to flesh that out a little bit? You had reconciliation there, Ephesians 1.10, which is the reconciling work that Christ, what the Father is doing through through Christ, our theme verse. Good. Any others? Jump in. There's a variety of ways we can answer this question, so. Definitely, that is his prayer, that we would understand our calling better and we would know the fullness of Christ. There's a lot of ways you can answer this, isn't there? There's a constellation of different terms that Paul uses. And I kind of went back to Ephesians 1, but I think all your answers are truthful and certainly could be part of this calling. But, you know, what is this calling? I think it lays it out in Ephesians 1, that we have been chosen, that we have been adopted as sons, that we have been redeemed. And we have received all these spiritual blessings in Christ. I think all of that is under that umbrella of our calling, the term calling. Certainly it is the gospel, and certainly it leads to hope. Certainly. But yes, this calling in Christ that we have been predestined, chosen, adopted, redeemed, reconciled, and blessed, and that good works have been prepared for us to do, all these are part of his calling. Upon us. So, what the Apostle Paul is saying, live a life worthy of the calling. Okay? Worthy of the calling. So, these exhortations in 4, chapter 4, are grounded upon the calling that we've read about in the first three chapters, right? That we are expected to respond to God's divine initiatives. In other words, as we've been talking about for the entire course, these imperatives follow these indicatives. What is true of us? So, we have been chosen, adopted, redeemed, and reconciled. Right, that our conduct must follow our calling. That our conduct must follow our calling. Our lives must conform to our calling. The way the Apostle Paul puts it here, we must walk worthy. This word worthy means equal to or in balance with our calling. We are to walk, we are to live in balance with our calling. In other words, we must give equal weight in our lives, to doctrine and practice, right? Worthy of the calling, equal to, in balance. Our calling and our walk is in balance with our calling. We must have both. Doctrine, chapters 1 through 3, primarily. But we must have practice, chapters 4 through 6. What happens when we have doctrine without practice? Chapters 1 through 3 alone in our lives. Pride 
self-righteousness, right? And the knowledge certainly can puff up. Yeah, good. Anything else come to mind? What do we have when we have doctrine without practice? Dead faith, hypocrisy, great answers. I agree with all those. Yeah. You have a cold, bitter orthodoxy, don't you? Zapped of any life and vitality, right? You have perhaps right thinking or correctness. There's no spiritual life, is there? If we have doctrine without practice, right? The calling without conduct, right? Indicative without imperative. But let's flip that. If you have practice without doctrine, what do you have? Where does that lead you? Legalism could be. Hey, what happens if you practice, but it's not informed by right thinking or doctrine? What happens? Ignorance, immaturity. What's that? Yeah. You do, right, exactly. It leads to aberration, right? We stray from the truth, right? We tend to go on what we think is right or what we feel is right, right? We're not grounded and tethered to sound doctrine. And pretty soon, exactly, our practices are right. We're not grounded in the truth, right? So we so quickly go astray in our practice because our practice isn't rooted in truth. The two have been severed, doctrine and practice, indicative and imperative. We must keep the two together. We must walk worthy of our calling. How does, at Palm Vista, Sunday morning in home group, fit into this paradigm of doctrine and practice. Yeah, Sean. Right, yeah, you know. Right. Yeah, I think simply put, that's what we're trying. Certainly, yeah, I think Sunday primarily you're getting doctrine, you're getting truth, right? We're proclaiming the truth, we're preaching it, right? You are listening, hearing it, taking it in. Now, hopefully, you're practicing it throughout their week, right? We provided a context on Wednesdays to be able to help work out and apply, to understand, yes, and also to hopefully apply what we're learning on Sundays. It's our attempt, the way we structure Palm Vista, to help with the, not only have doctrine, but also have practice. Not the only way, but it's one way we've chosen to build, to have doctrine and practice, right, in our church. That's a simple, not saying you don't have practice on Sundays. People are serving on Sundays to make it happen. You certainly are practicing what you believe on Sunday by serving in the different capacities that many of you do, all right? And certainly on Wednesdays, we're delving into the Word and seeking to understand it better, okay? Sound doctrine. But simply put, that's one way we've attempted to address both. That's why I think we need both in the life of the church, all right? Good. Well, question number two. Walk as you know by now, hopefully, is a key word in Ephesians. It really introduces the two major sections of chapter 4, walk worthy, right? 1 through 16, and then verses 17 through 32, walk in truth. So we see that word walk. What is the significance of this admonition to walk in light of Ephesians 2? We've seen this word before, haven't we? It's not the first time the Apostle Paul has introduced this word. He's kind of, you know, this is a significant word in Ephesians. So how does this connect? How does this help us? When we look back to Paul's former usage of this word. Yes, Kevin. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? Which he has prepared beforehand for us. I find that immensely helpful. But we can just jump into before and say, okay, these are the things I got, a list of things I got to do. Hey, yes, there's the things we ought to do, we ought to apply. But these are the very works that we're to walk in that God's already prepared for us. Go back to Ephesians 2. In other words, we can do this. Well, no, we really can't do it, but God can do it in and through us, right? There's hope here, right? So we look at Ephesians 4, we look at all these string of imperatives or functional imperatives of how we ought to live and we say yes but we're about walking in good works but these are good works which he has prepared for us 
and had in mind when he saved us as well. That gives me a lot of hope when I read all these admonitions. That gives me hope. The, verse, the two verses that precede chapter 4, verse 1. The doxology, that prayer. Go back to verse 20 of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work, where? Within us. We often apply that verse and speak of God doing the unimaginable. Kind of, you know, just the miracles. The things out there. But what he's talking about here is according to his measurable power at work within us. That power within us to do what? Right. He's working in us to do the very works he's already prepared for us to do. The very works that we are to walk in that we're talking about now in Ephesians 4, right? It's this power that resides within us to do the very things that he's called us to do. He calls us to do them, he prepares them in advance, and he empowers us to do them. Wow, that's helpful. I'm glad I read the first three chapters, okay? Otherwise, you can read this and you can feel like, you know, how can I, how can I fulfill this? There's no way. Oh, there is. There is. Look at the indicative. Always be sniffing around when you see an imperative, a command. There's a theological basis for what Paul is saying and a motivation and hope as well in what is asked. There's hope. Hope for what? Verse 2. We're to walk in a manner worthy, right? With all humility and gentleness. That can be yours. With patience. Yes, may it be, Lord. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is possible for each and every relationship. That is possible for my marriage. I can walk in these good works. I, yes, can experience humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. There's hope for our relationships that we can live this out in the Christian life, in the church, in our relationships, and yes, in our marriage as well. We can walk in these good works. Well, let's move on to question number three. In Ephesians 4, 3, verse 3, we find the command to walk eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. The word translated eager has an element of haste, of urgency, or even a sense of crisis to it, according to many Greek scholars, wiser than I. In other words, he's saying, do it now. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Why is unity in the church so critical based on what we've read in the first three chapters? United in Christ. Jew and Gentile is first and foremost here in the book of Ephesians. But not limited to that, is it? But certainly, that's where he goes, to show the wonder and mystery of the gospel. That he would unite Jew and Gentile, making one new man out of the two, right? Abolishing, right? The law and commandments. And that which stood opposed the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. He reconciled us to God, and he reconciled us to one another. This idea of unity. Yeah. Yeah, Leslie. Great. Great answer. Yeah. Leslie, the witness of the gospel is at stake here. We as the church are the visible witness and exhibit of Christ's reconciling work. What was the Father's plan from all eternity? Verse, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. To reconcile all things to himself, right? In the church or in judgment. Right? But to reconcile all things to himself. The church, as you learn in chapter 3, is that visible expression to the world of God's work, of his unifying work. It's usually uniting Jew and Gentile, all those, all those from different races, backgrounds, together as one people. We are evidence of Christ's reconciling work. Yes. Yes, certainly. Yes, certainly his reconciling work is to himself. And it's to one another as well. As we experience that, we're experiencing the wonder of the gospel, aren't we? And of his redeeming love and what he's accomplished and reconciling us to himself and one another. So certainly, we as a church, we proclaim this reconciling work to a watching world. 
So when he's saying that we are to walk in unity, it's, it's a unity that the Spirit creates, but at the same time, it's a unity of the Spirit, verse 3, but yet we are to maintain it, really, visibly, before a watching world, right? As a testimony of what the Father is doing, has done through Christ Jesus. There's a lot more at stake here. He's just not saying, you guys, just try to get along, will you? You know, like we may say to our kids who are fighting, just, why can't you just get along? Just get along. It's more than that. The gospel and the gospel witness is at stake and how we relate to one another, how we reconcile, how we are unified. It's making a theological statement. Okay? It's affirming a truth and a reality of what the Spirit has created through Christ's work and death on the cross. Relational unity and reconciliation. It's part of God's master plan. Right? Great. When we say, you know, I know I probably should be reconciled to that brother or sister. But you know what? I can, I, I can live with it. I know things aren't as they should be. I know there's coldness. There's probably, if I admit it, probably a little bitterness there. But you know what? I'm just going to stay clear of him or her. That person will stay clear of me. I think we'll be fine. It's not just about you. It's just about the other person. It's about the gospel. When we remain and make no attempt to reconcile to one another, I believe we're bringing reproach and even slander to the gospel. All right? There's more at stake than just your personal well-being. There's the gospel and our witness at stake in how we choose or don't choose to relate to one another in the church. I'm not saying that's all up to you. I'm talking about making the attempt, but certainly are you making the attempt to reconcile? Is there even someone that even comes to mind now that you know what? This be a brother or sister in Christ, but you know that you're estranged and you really have not made the effort to maintain the unity that God has won and purchased for you at the cross. Something just to, something to plant in your mind there, if that's the case. There's much more at stake than just you. There's the gospel. All right? We are to maintain the unity as is in our power, in humility, and yes, in forbearance. Well, let's talk a little more about that unity. Question four. Does this unity of the Spirit imply unity at any price? Does it imply some ecumenical compromise? at the expense of the gospel? Argue your answer from Ephesians 4. In other words, does this unity mean, well, Cord, you have to be like, in unity with everyone? Like with liberals and refashioned liberals? Does that mean I have to be in unity with the emergence, like a Rob Bell, you know, who would suggest, or seem to believe in universal salvation? Okay. Do, do I have to be in unity with him? Or with them? Where's the limits? What kind of unity are we talking about here? What do you see in Ephesians 4? Any thoughts there? Right, true, Gary. It's not unity at all costs, right? One faith, one hope, one baptism. What is he speaking of? I think the one faith. I think he's using that word objectively. The faith, that which is taught here concerning God the Father and God the Son, as is even taught right here in Ephesians. I think he's referring to the faith, the hope that we have. It's one civic hope based on a Redeemer, okay? Christ Jesus. So it's based on these doctrinal truths that we've just studied. Right? It's one faith. Not many faiths. One faith. One baptism. One hope. Great. Seeing the Trinity there. Different roles. But all equal. All related to one another. In perfect unity and accord. Right. That conjunction is important. Unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Right? So we're not right swayed by false doctrine and false teaching. There's no unity there. <laughs> right? False teaching divides. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, I love what you said earlier. Speaking the truth in love, I think we do, for those who profess to be Christians particularly, we may differ with. Yeah, I think we need to contend for the faith, particularly if it's an issue. Um, we're not talking about issues of eschatology, 
okay, pedo-baptists and versus believers-baptists. We're talking about core, we would say convictional values here. Who is Christ and what was accomplished at the cross? And certainly where there is a difference. God isn't calling us just to smooth over those differences. Oh, it's not that important. Um, no, I think we contend for the faith, the truth. Yeah. Yeah, I love, uh, I love uh, the new attitude now at the next conference. You know, the, the byline is humble orthodoxy. May, ask, may we be those of humble orthodoxy. May we contend for the truth and orthodoxy as we see it biblically. And we do so humbly as well, not self-righteously, but humbly, but yet firmly as well when it comes to these convictional, essential truths. Okay. Yeah. Good. So it's not unity at all costs, is it? Or unity with everyone. Great. But question number five. Well, does unity mean uniformity? Does unity then mean uniformity. Argue your, your answer from Ephesians 4 once again, especially verses 7 through 16. In other words, do we have, all have to be the same? All look alike? Sound alike? Is God looking for cookie-cutter Christians? No, he's not, is he? What do we see here in the text? Grace was given to each one of us, verse 7, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace is distributed in varied measure according to God's sovereign will and distribution. Different gifts and different measures of those gifts as well are given to individuals. Right? Good. Great. Good. We show, yeah, we complement one another. Certainly we have differing giftings and differing strengths that we're to use to build up the body of Christ to maturity. Yes. Yes, there's a wonderful diversity in the body of Christ. And it's beautiful, isn't it? A unity, diversity within unity. Yeah, was it Rusty first? And then David. Great. By the way, just great answers, guys. Thanks for applying yourselves here. Yeah, the, the, the body metaphor itself implies diversity, doesn't it? Different parts. Exactly. We have David, and then we'll go Carmen over there. Really. Not quite sure how following you. There's one calling, right? But where's the diversity fit in? I'm sorry, David. Gotcha, okay. So you're personalizing the call there. Your call. Your call that's to one faith. Yeah? Yeah, okay, maybe so. I haven't looked into that. I don't focus on that word, but yeah. Belongs to your call. Yeah, there is, there, there, there's a one faith, but it's also individualized as well in this passage, you know, um, as different gifts are apportioned according to God's sovereign will. It's a corporate oneness that's expressed individually as well in differing gifts and calling. Yeah. Carmen. It is. It's a marvelous thing, isn't it? And on the eyes of the Lord, it should be in our eyes as well as we look around our church, you know, that uh, we're not just one homogenous block, but we are individuals with different stories, different backgrounds, ages, socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnicity, you name it, as well. Different giftings that see here in Ephesians 4. Even differences, I'm not going beyond just the gifting here, but differences in, in taste and preference, you know, and what we like, how we dress, etc. You know, music we listen to. Yeah, on and on, yeah. So there's unity. And you know, there's a beautiful diversity as well. Good. Well, it goes on to verse 8. And Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 68. Verse 18 says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. The Apostle Paul is divinely inspired, is associated in this psalm regarding God in a Applying it to Christ. And not only did he descend, i.e. incarnate, to earth, but he died and rose again and ascended to heaven. In doing so, he gave gifts to men. What's interesting here is these gifts, it's not the familiar word charismata, grace gifts, actually, it's another 
Greek word that refers to gifts of persons. Okay? Of persons. In other words, he gave people gifts. Okay? To men. He gave spiritually gifted persons. And then following, in verse 11, we see a listing of some of these spiritually gifted people that Christ has given to the church. These aren't all, but I think he's emphasizing those particularly who operate in the realm of teaching or the word, okay? And he says in verse 11, and he gave, these are the grace gifts he gave, okay? These are the spiritually gifted persons that he gave to the church. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Question number six. What is the role of ministers of the word? Listen in Ephesians 4.11. I think I just answered that. Right? It's what's happening, hopefully, right now. As I teach, hopefully with some level of clarity, hopefully with increasing clarity, I'm exercising a teaching gift to help what? Equip you, the saints, for what? The work of the ministry. So with that in mind, second part of that question, of six, what is the role of the saints? What is your role, as we see in Ephesians 4.12? Building up the body of Christ? Right. Yours is the work of ministry. I am here, yes, to help teach and to exercise a pastor-teacher gift, but it's to equip you to do the work of the ministry for the building of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. For the building up of the body of Christ until all attain the unity of faith. So there's this, this kind of this already not yet tension. It's like we're unified but yet we are to labor in ministry until all attain to the unity of faith, to knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. So what is the difference between myself or a pastor or an evangelist and those who would not be so or have that gift? What's the difference? Not the work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got work, man. I got to work with you, Kevin. That's, 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 that's extra work right there, man. Oh, I am to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So what's the difference between me and you? Or a pastor, or an elder, and those who may not be in the church? What's that? Trainer? Yeah. It's simply a matter of special gifts and the way I serve, right? Right? It's my role. But we all do ministry. There's no ministry versus non-ministry. There's no, as I read Ephesians, as we read Ephesians, clergy and laity split. The clergy do all the ministry, and the laity receive all the ministry. That's not what we see here. Not at all. Contrary. There is no artificial split there in, in that sense. Yes, we may differ by different, we had different gifts and called the different service within the body. There's no split. There's no clericalism, so to speak. I'll give you a quote from uh, this is John Stott. He quotes Sir John Lawrence. He says, what does a layman really want? He wants a building which looks like a church, clergy dressed in the way he approves, services of the kind he's been used to, and to be left alone. I thought, if that's what someone wants a Palm Vista, I, I pity them. He wants a building which looks like a church. Okay. My leg's middle school. Clergy dressed in the way he approves. Well, maybe if you like jeans and maybe a collared shirt. If you're looking for robes, I'm sorry. Services of the kind he's been used to. have come from a Catholic church or anything like that. High church. It's not going to look anything like. Maybe if you even came from another evangelical church. You come to our church. We don't even sing the songs everyone else is singing. It's different, you know? And to be left alone. Come to Paul Vista, you're probably not going to be left alone if we have anything to do with it, right? <laughs> so I had to laugh at that, but uh, 
I don't believe that is true of those that are members here at Palm Vista by any stretch of the imagination, but certainly it is true of some who come. But that is not what we want to produce here at Palm Vista. We want to produce ministers, those who are ministering to one another, body ministry and body life. We want you to be equipped to counsel and to serve and to minister to one another as we see here in Ephesians chapter 4. So the last part of that question. We talked about the role of ministers of the word, the role of saints. Third part of that question, number six. What is Paul's main concern here? What does he want to see happen in the church? Maturity. Verses 11 through 16. It's one sentence in the Greek. It's one long sentence. A lot going on. If you had to summarize it, maturity. He wants us to grow up. You see, our mission statement at Paul Vista, right, is to proclaim him, right? Got it wrong. To worship him, image him, and proclaim him. The three, three legs of the stool. That's our mission statement. Those are all things that we do, right? We worship. Image, yeah, we do as well. And then proclaim. That's all true. That's our mission. But if you had to say, what is the purpose of the church? The broad, sweeping purpose of the church. I think we have it right here. To bring every member to maturity in Christ. That is our main purpose right here, as we see in Ephesians 4. That the church may be grown up, that we may be fully grown, and each of its members might contribute to that maturity by becoming spiritual adults. In other words, our purpose is growth, growth in Christ. Christ Christ-likeness. As it says in Ephesians 4, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, that we may be like Christ. Christ is the standard of perfection to which we aim. We won't get there until heaven, but we're aiming. He is the standard that we may be mature, teleos, complete. Then we may be like Christ. What's our purpose? Maturity. What's our purpose? The church? Growth. Whenever I see my in-laws, they ask this, you know, they just want to ask questions about how the church is going, and they always ask, so, is your church growing? They always ask that. It's the first question they always ask. You know what? Great question. Is the church growing? The question is, what do you mean by the question, is it growing? Now, most of us mean, is it growing numerically? That's what he means, I know. But I say, yes, I believe our church is growing. But I'm not speaking just numerically, although it is. I'm much more concerned about this type of growth right here. This is biblical growth. So it's a great question. Are we growing? But how do you assess our growth? We look at each member. Are we maturing in Christ? To mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Are we in unity and growing together as a body? Are we maturing together individually and as a body? Is that unity and growth manifest in our church life? It's a hard thing to assess. That's what we're aiming for. I believe that's what God is doing in our church. And that is the very purpose that he's brought us together. Yes, we do many other things, as I mentioned, proclaiming, witnessing, certainly. But this is what he wants to produce in us. It is growth. So now we see even what Al shared last Sunday, right? A hard word from Hebrews 5. What's the implication if we're not growing, if we're still stuck on milk, if we're a big adult in a baby stroller sipping milk from a bottle, right? See, if we're not growing, if we're still on a bottle, if we're not growing, maturing in the Word of God, we're not growing. And if we're not growing, we're not just cheating ourselves, we're cheating the church. Okay? The 
point is that together, as we grow in this word, and we grow together in Christ, as we exercise our gifts, that the whole body is being built up. So there's implications. So why the strong words in Hebrews? Why the strong word from Al on Sunday? The purpose of the church and what we exist for is at stake. Okay? If we're not growing, we're not graduating upon, graduating from our bottle and growing to take in solid food, i.e., growing in our knowledge of Scripture and a skillful application of it in teaching and in service to one another, we're not growing. We have failed as a church. And that means I've failed and Jose has failed because <laughs> we have failed to equip you. <laughs> All right. That's Eric ministry and maturity. So just to broaden the implications and really importance of what we talked about on Sunday. Growing. Well, how do we serve one another? Great phrase found in verse 15. Speaking the truth in love. Oh, how important that is. Going back to verse 14. That we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I was with my children at the beach a couple weeks ago, and it was a windy day, as it often is, in April. And we would literally go out to the water's edge right where my beach chair was, and the kids were just being thrown and tossed by the way, just pummeled by the waves. Five minutes later, we're 200 yards down. We had drifted that far in just a couple minutes. You could barely see the beach chair our entry point when we came into the ocean. Oh, how easy it is to be tossed to and fro like children who are fickle and impressionable, swayed by wrong thinking and false doctrine, and pretty soon we've drifted way, way, way from the truth. Oh, our responsibility is to speak truth in love to those who may be carried away by false doctrines or just errant wrong thinking as well. That's our job together, to see the truth in love. And when you see someone drifting from the faith, yes, it's my responsibility, it's his responsibility, but it's also yours as well. Are you speaking to those who are drifting? Are you serving them by speaking the truth to them? Yes, in love, in humility. But are you pursuing them as a part of the body of Christ? Oh, that's part of ministry together. It's part of body life, as we see here. So we might not be deceived by deceitful schemes. They may grow up together into him who is the head. Question seven. Why does Paul testify, i.e. insist, can be another translation, they use an NIV, that Gentile believers no longer walk as the Gentiles do in Ephesians 4.17. We've now hit a different section here. This is the second section of chapter 4. It was walk worthy. This is walk in truth. And he starts a new sentence in verse 17. It goes all the way to verse 24. One long sentence here. And Paul is insisting that we as Gentiles no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Why does he say that? What's at stake here? Yes, Patrick. Yeah, there should be a difference, right? Right. Who's he speaking to? Is he speaking to Jews or Gentiles here in this letter? Gentiles. Right. They're old selves. That's how you once were, right? As an unbelieving, unconverted Gentile. But you must demonstrate a way of life that conforms to your identity as a new man. Right? That has been created for good works. And then Paul emphasizes here, right, this Gentile thinking, this unbelieving Gentile thinking, this mindset marked by futility and ignorance, which we see similar wording in, in Romans 1 here. And he says this fascinating phrase in verse 20. I love this phrase. As he contrasts the futile, ignorant 
thinking of the Gentiles. By the way, as we think, so we act, okay? (laughs) He's saying, that's not you. That is not the way you learned Christ. Is that a great phrase? What would you expect him to say? That is not the way that you learned of Christ, maybe, right? To live like Christ? About Christ? It's not there. That's not the way you learned Christ. It's the only time we see this phrase in all the Bible, in Greek literature, biblical, and otherwise. Right? He said, that's not the way you learned Christ. He's saying, what does he mean? We're to learn a person. We just don't learn doctrine. We just don't learn facts. It's not the way that you learned Christ. In other words, you have entered into a personal relationship with Christ. And this changes everything. It changes you. Okay? You are a new man, woman in Christ. Is that the way that you've learned Christ? He has changed you. Don't live as you once did, walking in the dead works when you were dead in your transgressions. Right? Ephesians 2. Don't live as an unconverted Gentile, but live as you now are in Christ, as you have learned Christ, as one who has been united, united with Christ. That is now your identity, and you have been changed. You catch that? I pray that would be the phrase of my children. You know, one day when they leave my house, I want it to be now, but certainly the day they leave, whether it be college, whether it's out in the world, they would say, that is not the way that I learned Christ. It's not the way. Oh yes, sin has an appeal. I'm so tempted by sin. But that's not who I am now. That's not the way I learned Christ. He has wrought a change in me. I am now united in Christ. I am part of this new humanity and new creation which Christ has done in me. That's not the way I learned Christ. I'm not going to walk in that way any longer. Oh, may it be for us, may it be for our children, all those we're in relationship with. That's not the way that we learn Christ. Question eight. What is the significance of the phrase to put off your old self, literally man, in Ephesians 4.22, and put on the new self, i.e. the new man, in Ephesians 4.24, What is the significance of that language that Paul uses there? Old man or new man? Right, good, right. And where do we see in Ephesians 2 the same language or similar language? Of new man. Fifteen, right? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So yeah, in that sense, he's talking about a corporate unity entity, right? Jew and Gentile alike, one new man. But this corporate entity also has individual expression as well. That you also are a new man, right? So put off your old self. It's like put off your old garments. Put off your grave clothes. And put on your new self. Put on the new man who you are as part of this one new humanity. Put on your wedding, your best wedding garments. You are united in Christ, right? The bride of Christ. Take off the old. Put on the new. In other words, act like the new creation that you are in Christ. Another way to say it. Act like the new creation that you are in Christ. Put off the old man, put on the new man. Great, well, question number nine. In Ephesians 4, 25-32, it provides concrete, specific exhortations that flow from Ephesians 4, 17-24. A key phrase in this section in this command, in this section is the command to put away, found in verses 25-31. What are some things that we are to put away? 
based on this truth of who we are in Christ. A lot of things listed here. Falsehood, okay. Let, let's start with we'll start one at a time. Falsehood, right? We're to put off falsehood. By the way, all these exhortations here that we're going to list all have to do with personal relationships within the body, how we're to live and relate to one another, right? In unity, right? So put off falsehood and speak truthfully. Literally, it's put off the lie. Why? Because we must what? Speak the truth in love, among other things, right? Put off the lie. He's concerned with truth and falsehood. It's a theme we see, right? throughout this fourth chapter of Ephesians. Put off falsehood. See the truth in love. Not just, certainly he's talking about intentional lying here, but not just that. We can also say, put off carelessness about the truth. Be careful about the truth. Know the truth. Okay? The knowledge of the Son of God. So put off intentional lying, but put off carelessness about the truth, that we may be people of the truth, right? So put off falsehood. Speak truthfully. What's the second one that we see? Anger. All anger? What kind of anger? Unrighteous anger. Put it off. Deal with it quickly. Put off all unrighteous angry. Anger, excuse me. Right? Obviously, there's latitude there. There is a righteous anger, right? Not all anger is sin, as we see in this text, right? I mean, the implication is unrighteous anger. When we're angry at the wrong time for the wrong reasons, okay? As opposed to a righteous anger, which is morally indignant regarding injustice, God's ways. Put off anger. Thirdly, what else do we see here to put away? Stealing, theft, right? Put off stealing and work for a living instead. Put off theft. This is all how we relate to one another, right? What, what is the motivation there? It's interesting. What's the motivation for putting off thievery or theft? Is it security, wealth, ease? What, what's the reason? Fascinating. Sharing, right? That you have something to share with those in need. That's fascinating motivation, isn't it? Basis <laughs> for not stealing. There is a legitimate poor that we're to care for. It's not saying all poverty is. There's some who's not willing to work, right? Who can work. He's saying, get to work here, okay? <laughs> Use your hands. But there's also legitimate saying, I want you to put away stealing and thievery that you may have something to share with those in need. I think when we see this too, we can kind of maybe, I don't know about you, kind of dismiss, well, I don't steal, I don't have a problem, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a klepto, I'm not going into convenience stores and, you know, <laughs> and stealing or department stores, but let's broaden a little bit so we're not just all off the hook because I can let myself off the hook very easily here. Hey, no problem. I don't steal. I've got a problem with that. Oh, God, there's so many ways we can steal from God and one another. We can steal from God when we fail to worship him and honor him, give him the glory, do his name. We take that glory and honor for ourselves. We can steal from our employers. We do not give them the best work, which we are capable of. When we waste time at work, when we leave work consistently, consistently early, all right, I propose to you, we're stealing. We can steal if we're businessmen by overcharging for what we make or for the service we render. We can steal by borrowing and not repaying as well. There's many ways that we can steal, okay? Put off falsehood, put off unrighteous anger, put off or put away theft. What's the next one? Corrupting talk. Put away corrupting talk. That which rots, literally, right? 
but instead speak to build others up. Verse 29, a wonderful verse. To quote O'Brien here, a commentator, believers are to achieve what is good with their mouths as well as with their hands. Right? Put away corrupting, harmful, unwholesome talk. What kind of talk is that? Abusive talk? Vulgar talk? Slanderous talk as well. You see, the speech that's unwholesome and corrupting and rotting defiles not just the speaker, but it defiles and is destructive of communal life together as well. We're to put away corrupting talk, but rather the opposite. Speak the truth in love to build one another up. Right? But only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give, a great phrase, that it may give grace to those who hear. I suggest there's probably room for conviction for all of us on that one verse right there. What a beautiful verse. It does. Corrupting talk lacks grace. It does, exactly. And lastly, I'll get to the grieving of the Holy Spirit. Just put off or put away bitterness, rage, malice. Instead, be tenderhearted, be kind, be loving, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. These are things that we are to put off knowing the reality of who we are now in Christ, our identity as a new creation, as part of a new humanity in Christ. But he has that curious phrase, I want to end with, we find that in verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And that is the last question, question 10. Given the immediate context and main themes of Ephesians, how can we grieve the Holy Spirit of God? What does that mean? According to the text here. Can we find any clues to what Paul may be referring to? How can we grieve the Holy Spirit? Definitely. Let's talk about that a little more specifically. Certainly. We're not walking worthy of the calling. Right? Right. All these things, if we give in to, we do not put off all these things, what? They will divide. They will cause dissension. There will be lack of unity. The very unity, which is from the Holy Spirit, right? Was it chapter 4? Was it verse 3? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. If we don't put away these things, there will not be unity of the Spirit. We will grieve the Holy Spirit as we conduct ourselves in a way that's unworthy, yes, of the calling, as we steal, right? As we use corrupting talk, as we give in to unrighteous anger, as we give in to falsehood and do not speak the truth. We will divide, right? We will destroy the unity of the body. What else? Yeah. Excellent point, right? It, it mars the work of the Holy Spirit in building up Christ's people, right? In growing us when we give in and fail to put off. We are grieving the Holy Spirit in the very work of unity in the building up of Christ's people. Great. Any others? Great thoughts. Patrick. Well, I hope looking at the context here of these verses, looking at the indicatives that are there embedded in the chapter, in the preceding chapters, help give amplification to these very admonitions that we read here. Because so often we can read them as a list of things of do's and don'ts, right? As sins between you and God. And certainly they are vertical. They have an effect as well in our witness and what God's called us to be as a church, as a body who is being edified and built up to maturity in Christ. So what we've done really this evening is, just going back to the analogy I used, I think it was the very first class. I talked about, I used to have breakfast every morning by myself as an only child. I used to sit there and look at my little pathetic bowl of Cheerios in my Tupperware, Tupperware little bowl. And I used to look at the cereal box next to me and it's looked like a beautiful breakfast emplacement. There'd be cantaloupe and bananas and cascading, remember, white cascading milk flowing down on top of bobbing strawberries. I think, wow, I want that, you know? What we've done today is we've set the placement, okay? We set the table, so to speak, that we can 
interpret and see these admonitions in the table that Paul has laid out in Ephesians 4. So we can see it in its proper placement. Okay, That all these commands and imperatives are buttressed and provided meaning by the very indicatives and truths that are ours in Christ. They go together. That's how we should read our Bible, guys. It takes work, but you'll see it. Looking for the indicatives that inform the imperatives how we should live. And hopefully as we cultivate eyes to see that, Scripture will come alive. We'll see the strawberries and the bananas and (laughs) all the rest. And it'll be a beautiful, beautiful meal. That's my prayer for you guys, that we develop those eyes. And hopefully this course is helping you to do that. Well, any questions we have before we conclude? Lord, do you pray for Miguel right now? We don't know Miguel, but obviously this is a person on Carmen. It's in David's heart as well, so we carry that burden together. Lord, we pray right now for a gracious, merciful, successful liver transplant, Father. Lord, this is a means of grace that you provided through organ transplants, through doctors and capable hands, and we do ask for your mercy now upon Miguel, Lord that you give him many more days, days, I would pray, in which he can use and redeem to proclaim you and share forth your glory and your healing, we ask. Amen. Amen. Well, guys, thank you for your attention tonight. Thank you for your hard, diligent, and skillful labor in the Word of God. Thank you for wanting to grow.